Opiate addiction is rapidly becoming one of the biggest health crises in the United States today. Opiates have killed more than 28,000 people in 2014, and opiate deaths now outnumber motor vehicle accidents and gunshot fatalities. This is the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, and I'm Dr. Shira Johnson, your host. With me today is Dr. Kenji Oyasu, the Executive Medical Director for Brightside Clinic. Dr. Oyasu has over 20 years of clinical experience in ER medicine, including managing director and regional director of several large emergency medicine contract groups. Today, we're discussing common misconceptions about medically-assisted treatment for opiate addiction. Dr. Oyasu, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. You know, the epidemic that opiate addiction has become is so rampant and it seems so in multiple venues, but I think where you see it the most in, in the clinical realm is in the emergency room. If you ask our colleagues in emergency medicine what they've seen in the last several years, and they will tell you there's been an increased number of overdose deaths as well as drug-seeking behavior. The statistics are clear. A thousand visits a day to the emergency room regarding opiates in some capacity. So we have seen now the increase in what used to be just people that were, quote-unquote, nodding off from heroin or opiates in general that were woken up by EMS by giving a reversal agent called Narcan. Now we're seeing them coming in as full cardiac arrests with CPR in progress. So, and these are not the people that you would expect or what has been commonly thought of as the type of people that would be abusing opiates. The face of the opiate addict has really changed. Now we see common nine-to-five working people, soccer moms, professionals, bankers, lawyers, doctors, nurses that are coming in with all sorts of issues related to their opiate addiction. So seeing this and knowing that there's so very little resource, one of the most frustrating things we've experienced in emergency medicine regarding this subject is that there's no place to refer these people to. When we have someone come in in, that, in one of these situations, the best we can do is offer them either the on-call physician, it might be the on-call pediatrician, but they are typically not equipped to handle this kind of scenario. And if you do refer them to some type of alcohol treatment or drug treatment program, classically they're full. And there could be a waiting list of 90 days. So most of these people are acute and they need intervention very quickly, such that not giving them the appropriate treatment and resource is going to be potentially fatal. So my partners and I decided enough is enough, and each of one of us have had some type of experience with a friend or family member that is related to opiates. And what you'll also notice is that what used to be multiple degrees of separation is now closer and closer to home. So what used to be, I heard a story about a, a person with this issue is now, oh, that's right, my next door neighbor. Oh, it's my niece, my cousin, my best friend. So we hear it so commonly, we decided, okay, this is, this is enough is enough. We need to provide the resource that really just doesn't you know, exist in the community right now. So we've opened up a facility that will be able to treat large numbers of opiate addiction patients in the outpatient setting. And one of the other niches that we're trying to create is the continuance for maintenance treatment for a lot of people that have gone into an inpatient program. Because the classic mistake has always been, we will keep you clean for those 30 days while you're in our program, but when we send you home, we insist that you go to some type of outpatient program, but it's typically not medically assisted. So the number one day that they're most vulnerable to overdose or relapse is the day they get out of rehab or the day they get out of jail. So here we are, and trying to create a difference in, in the community. So first to clarify, when you say opiates, you don't just mean heroin, right? 
No, I'm talking about every form of opiate. That could be pills, most commonly Norco, Percocet, Oxycontin, morphine. But the classic scenario is that a patient has had some type of injury or pain-related issue such that they were put on an opiate such as Norco or Hydrocodone or Percocet. And when the pain issue has pretty much resolved, what they continue to use or misuse the opiates. So that classically becomes the scenario where people, when they can no longer get the opiates, will turn to something more uh, unstructured like heroin because it's easy access, it's cheap, but a lot more dangerous. Many places will offer medically assisted treatment for a short, limited amount of time. So they will classically use something like a buprenorphine product for five to seven days during their 30-day inpatient detox treatment, for example, but then they'll taper them off and they will send them out with really with their opiate receptors completely uncovered and leaving them vulnerable for overdose or relapse. So our goal is longer-term maintenance treatment and longer-term taper. So when patients come to us and say, well, I've had a six-month issue with this pain pill, that's one thing. But when I have another patient that comes to me and says, I've had this problem for 15 years. I've been in and out of rehab facilities and this program and that program, and each time I've failed and relapsed, we know there's a reason for that. There is a true physiologic medical condition that occurs that exists now in the brain that makes this a chronic medical condition. So it really merits the respect and compassion that we give to any other chronic medical condition, whether it's diabetes or heart disease or seizure disorder. You know, I always often say this, but sadly enough, there are no diabetics sitting around a church basement sharing coffee and sharing stories about their diabetes. But this is the same kind of scenario. Opiate addiction, due to the brain changes that have occurred, needs some type of, not, not everyone, of course, but a, a good portion of these people will require persistent medically-assisted treatment for continued long-term recovery. I always believe that they need both counseling and medically-assisted treatment, but it's the combination of the two that will provide long-term success. So Suboxone, many of our listeners may not know about it. What is it and how does it work, and how is it different from methadone? So people need to understand when it comes to medically-assisted treatment, there are basically three forms of treatment. One would be methadone. It's the tried-and-true method that's been around since the 60s. Buprenorphine, which is the medication that's in Suboxone and other combo medications like that. And then there's something called Vivitrol, which is a long-acting medication that is a reversal agent. So what people need to know that is that there is many different ways to treat this, and one size does not fit all. So each therapy needs to be individualized, and you have to decide, based on your evaluation of the patient, what is the best modality for them to be successful long-term. So methadone is what's called a full opiate agonist, which means that when this medication hits the opiate receptor in the body, it'll fire the opiate receptor much in the same way that the illicit opiate will. But the idea is to do it in a controlled fashion such that you control the right, you give the right amount of medication. But the limitations in that is that it is, in fact, a full opiate agonist. So you can, in fact, get euphoric effects from it, and you can overdose and die from it. Now, Trexone, on the opposite side, is a medication that will block that opiate receptor and prevent you from using any other opiates. So that's one modality of treatment. We believe in buprenorphine, which is a medication that's in most commonly known as Suboxone. It is what we call a partial opiate agonist. So because of the pharmacodynamics of the medication, what will happen is that this will attach itself to the opiate receptors, 
preventing illicit opiates from attaching, affixing to it, thus protecting you from the illicit opiates. But at the same time, since it is a partial opiate agonist, it will stimulate the opiate receptors such that it will mitigate the withdrawal symptoms and the crave sensation that people get from long-term use. Can any primary care doctor write for Suboxone? No. Unfortunately, not anyone can necessarily. There is a, a training period that has to occur. Oddly enough, uh, you and I can write for any opiate across the board, and we could write for pounds of OxyContin, but you could not write for buprenorphine because of the way that the government has structured its use. I know, and the, quant the quantities can be unlimited. You can do 120, 180 tablets of oxycodone, and Walgreens, they, they honor the, the, the prescription, and it goes through without anyone thinking twice. That's correct, and that, that is the irony behind all this. The irony is that when they decided in 2000 that we are allowed to use buprenorphine as a medication to treat opiate addiction, they put a lock on it. So once you get a specific DEAX license to provide that medication, in the first year you're only allowed to treat 30 patients. And that was a very random number to, be, to assign it, but the following year it goes to 100. But if you are looking for a Suboxone provider, it's very difficult. So I've had patients call me and tell me that they've searched online for two days looking for a provider, and there is a list that occurs online. But when you call down that list, even if you called all 300 providers, you might get an answer maybe out of eight or nine. And because of the limitations, within those eight or nine, some of them may say that they're full and they cannot add any more patients to their docket. So that is one of the biggest limiting factors to getting a Suboxone treatment. If you're just joining us, this is ReachMD, and I'm Dr. Shira Johnson. I'm speaking today with Dr. Kenji Oyasu, an ER director from Chicago who founded Brightside Clinic. We're talking about opiate addiction, who it affects, and treatment alternatives. So, Kenji, how do you start a patient on Suboxone? Well, that's a good question. Like I said, because of the mechanism of this medication, we have to be very careful about the timing. This medication actually has a higher affinity for the opiate receptors. So if they are normal, that is, they're not even high, that they're, they are just, and this is, this, is the most, this is the classic scenario. Most of our patients are not getting high on opiates anymore. They are just using the medication to mitigate the withdrawal symptoms they're having. And because of the short-term effects of the medication, they need to continuously use, whether that's popping pills or shooting into their veins, it's, it's all day. And the nice thing about buprenorphine is that it's longer acting, so it's such that we can dose this medication once or even twice a day. And in long term, we can do it every other day. So it really saves them a lot of time and effort and, and really money as well. So to get them started, we need to time it very carefully. We need to make sure that they've been abstinent from their opiate for a certain amount of time prior to their initiation of the medication. Otherwise, we will put them in what's called precipitated withdrawal. And a lot of opiate addicts know this and they fear this because it's, it's again, it's like the, having the worst stomach flu of your life. It's nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, your nose is running, you're yawning, you've got goosebumps, and your whole body hurts. And no one wants to deal with that. So typically what we do at our clinic is we'll call in or write for mitigating medications to help them through that process until we can start them on the buprenorphine. And when people get started on it, it's quite remarkable. The effects take hold very quickly, and depending on the length of addiction and the type of opiate they've been misusing, uh, people have different reactions, but typically within the first day or two, they are significantly better. So the process would be initially an induction process within the first week, then there's the acute stabilization period, followed by maintenance.
and once they're on a maintenance regimen, they can come once a month to the clinic, get their medication. As long as they're feeling well and doing, doing well, they can engage in the other portion of treatment that's so vitally important in recovery, and that's counseling. Are these patients maintained on Suboxone for life, and what costs are involved? When I talk about the cost, we, my partners and I sort of scoured the neighborhood to see who's doing what and at what cost, and we are significantly lower than the median. But when I do the math with a lot of my patients, when they look at me and said, that sounds a little bit costly to me, well, I said, you know, this medication is covered by virtually any insurance policy, and it could be any Medicaid Obama plan that will cover this at the local pharmacy, and that would be the biggest cost. But when you think about the cost of, of money and time that they put in trying to maintain their opiate addiction, it's a drop in the bucket. And so most of these people realize when they do the math, they go, oh, I spend that much in two days, and you're telling me this is how much it would cost in a month. And I, and I said, yes, you have to figure out what you're going to do with the money you're going to save. But not just the money you save, it's the health benefits and the time. A lot of my patients will tell me I spend three, four, five hours a day or all day either looking for drugs or looking for money for drugs or whatever it is that engages them in illicit and compulsive behavior, which is the hallmark of addiction. What patients are right for Suboxone? Because you said before it's probably not for everybody. Well, Suboxone is a great medication for people that are looking to rid themselves of the crave and withdrawal from any opiates. When I look at patients that have persistent true pain syndromes, there are times that I push them towards one modality versus another. There are also times when, they, when I find that they are polysubstance abuses, which, which is very common. Sometimes it's more appropriate for them to be in an inpatient setting first and become stabilized. But if there are people that are just opiate, straight opiates and, and nothing else, this is an ideal medication for virtually all of them. One of the things I want to touch on is, that, is a very common misconception by both the public and even within the medical community that this is a just, and you'll hear this a lot, exchanging one addiction for another. And that's completely false. If you think about this, since the mechanism of buprenorphine within Suboxone is such that, again, it's a partial opiate agonist, if you are an opiate addict, that is, you are, you've, you've had a lot more experience with opiates and you're not no opiate naive, you will not get high from this medication. You will not experience the euphoria that you get with a full opiate agonist. Plus, there's also something called a ceiling effect of this medication. So if you are therapeutic, it's, for example, 12 milligrams, and you take 16, 20, 24, 36 milligrams, you'll have the same effect as 12. So our goal is to find a dose that is the lowest possible to maintain a normal sensation for them. And most of these people will tell me, I just feel normal. I can't believe I feel this well. This is what I used to feel like before I started abusing opiates. I actually had a patient last night in the emergency room. And once in a while it occurs, and <laughs> when it does, it's a victory. But the classic patient comes in with a kidney stone story. And then you check the PMP, which is the prescription monitoring program, and you will realize that she just filled you know, 60 Oxycontin five days ago by a urologist, and then 45 hydrocodones from her primary care physician, and then another 30 tonal codines at acute care, and realize that her issue probably really isn't kidney stone anymore. But to get them to realize their issue is actually addiction and not pain, this is kind of the challenge. But this is a woman that did very well. I actually had the opportunity to induce her with buprenorphine in the emergency room, which is something I think should occur more and more. And it's something that we need to get people to understand that this is a very safe medication to start. And once you get to, to know it, I think you'll feel a lot more comfortable with emergent inductions. 
Can you share with us some numbers about efficacy or some success stories that you've had? Sure. One of my favorite stories actually is one of our very first patients. She did it right. She's a 23-year-old gal who had a heroin issue. There's a lot of tragic stories about issues that they've had in their childhood and comorbid PTSD, anxiety, depression disorders that they have, which makes them vulnerable to addiction. But she was in a methadone program for a little while and just couldn't deal with the daily going to the clinic for her daily dose and said, one day, that's it. I'm going to go cold turkey. I'm going to stop. Of course, she got remarkably ill. So she went to her primary care doctor, which is exactly what she should be doing. So she went, and the primary care doctor says, well, I can't really help you, but here's a list. Maybe you can call. And sure enough, she just went down the list and started calling down and down until everyone's no answer, no answer, no answer, or were full, and got to us. And she came in, she had to drive maybe 35, 40 minutes from where she was to come to us. And we realized that she wasn't quite ready for induction because methadone is a very long-acting medication. To, so to transfer over from that takes a little more time, a little more finesse. So we, and this is a poor gal who didn't have a dollar to her name, and, but at this time we were a brand-new startup, and we said, well, let's bring her in. We'll just go ahead and treat her. So when we did, she did extremely well. She was able to go back to work and make the appropriate payments for us. And she's been in recovery ever since that day, and she's currently 36 weeks pregnant and doing fantastic. Oh, that's wonderful. It's, it's, really, it's really quite a victory. And we have a lot of victory stories like that. You know, when people come to us, uh, oftentimes they've actually had some experience with Suboxone. And sadly enough, sometimes those are stories of, it was diverted, I bought it off the street at this kind of cost well, why didn't you continue it? I couldn't find someone to provide it for me. So, you know, it's odd is that the people that are pushing the heroin oftentimes are saying, here, here's a few Suboxone to tide you over, um, but uh, come back with your money. Yeah, no, I, no, I've heard that too. I've heard that too. They can get it on the streets. Mm -hmm. So we have to be very careful about uh, treatment in, in this regard, such that uh, we do have to test for medical compliance with uh, urine toxicologies and things, but, you know, but that's about all we do. If, if patients are compliant, then we have a good relationship, and then you know, we're going to be with them for a very long time. When you ask about whether or not they need to be on lifelong therapy, it depends. You know, if you have a, a year-long history or a six-month history, I always tell them, give me half the time that it took you to get to this point to get you down and taper you appropriately. But if it's been a 15-year history of this, that, and the other, I think it's not unreasonable for you to be on a lifelong treatment. But then again, this isn't any different than having hypertension. This isn't any different than having congestive heart failure. You're going to be medicated, and we don't taper people off their diabetes medicine, for example. So, you know, if this allows people to participate in therapy and engage in a normal, healthy lifestyle, then so be it. This is just another medical condition that needs to be treated. So how can doctors listening to this show or perhaps their, their family members or patients, how can they get them referred to your clinic? Can you give us a little information? Sure. We have a first office in Northbrook, Illinois, and we're looking to expand to the south side of the city, and we're looking for a west side location right now. But www.brightsideclinic.com, or you can, a lot of people will find us on Google search when they, they look for Suboxone providers. But if you were to Google search Brightside Clinic, as in look on the bright side, or, and our number is 224-205-7866. So my thanks to our guest today, Dr. Kenji Oyasu. We've been discussing suboxone treatment and its role in opiate addiction. Dr. Oyasu, or Kenji, because I've known you for so many years, it was really great having you on the program today. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Shira. To download this podcast and others in the series, please visit ReachMD.com or download the ReachMD app. We welcome you to share, like, and comment on this podcast. 
I am your host, Shira Johnson, and this is ReachMD, inviting you to be part of the knowledge. Thank you for joining us.